This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. This is Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. Our cause is sacred. How can we doubt it when we know it has been consecrated by a holy baptism of fire and blood? So said a North Carolina minister about the Confederacy in the aftermath of the South's defeat at the Battle of Shiloh in 1862. This arresting quote contributes to the title of James P. Byrd's new book, A Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood, The Bible and the American Civil War, published by Oxford. He writes this, this is a book about how Americans enlisted the Bible in the nation's most bloody and arguably most biblically infused war. Uh, Bird is chair of the Graduate Department of Religion and Associate Professor of American Religious History at Vanderbilt University Divinity School. And if you're interested in this book, you need to also pick up his previous work, Sacred Scriptures, Sacred War, The Bible and the American Revolution. Now, just at the Battle of Antietam, four times as many American soldiers died compared to 80 years later on the beaches of Normandy in World War II. Twice as many Americans died that one horrible day outside Sharpsburg, Maryland, as in the War of 1812, the Mexican War and Spanish-American War combined. Americans should have known from the Bible that civil wars are the worst wars, and even God's chosen nations could self-destruct, Bird argues in this book. They may not have expected such a tragedy at the outset of the war, but by the end, they had draped the whole conflict in Scripture, culminating with Father Abraham, killed on Good Friday after setting the captives free. Bird writes this, Americans were never in more disagreement over the Bible, and yet never more in agreement that the Bible proved the sacredness of war. Bird joins me on Gospel Bound to discuss the Jeremiah, Aiken, Exodus, Camp Revivals, Frederick Douglass, and Abolitionist Views of Inerrancy. Dr. Bird, thank you for joining me on Gospel Bound. Colin, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's just start basic here. How did Americans tend to view the Bible in the years leading up to the Civil War? Well, most Americans look to the Bible for various facts, uh, for consolation, for truth. The nation at that time was primarily Protestant in its religious makeup, not completely, of course, never has been completely, and you have a good number of Native peoples who were uh, not worshiping in a Christian context at all. You had a lot of people who had come here from various parts of the world who were not Christian, uh, for sure. But for those who were Christians, the majority of them were Protestant at this point in some way. And so the Bible was probably the most read book. It was certainly the most talked about book and the most cited book. So 
the, it made sense then that they would quote the Bible a lot, use the Bible a lot. And a lot of people thought the Bible was just common sense and that they could understand the Bible by just picking it up and reading it, that the Bible was just easily understood. A Methodist Phoebe Palmer, who was very influential at the time, said the Bible is a wonderfully simple book. And a lot of people believe that. So the Bible was just literally everywhere. So give a context for people um, just of kind of the religious feeling of the nation. Are we talking a high tide, low ebb? Where are we exactly in terms of religion in American history when it comes to 1860? I don't think there's a real, uh, a really accurate way to depict the, the nation's religious uh, sensibility at the time. I don't think we can say that there was like an upsurge of revival or that there was a downsurge. It was just all over the map. Some places were experiencing revival. Some places weren't. Um, there were just a lot of people who were concerned about the nation's division, and that concern led them to religious convictions. They were turning to their ministers. They were turning to the Bible to try to find uh, find some solutions to the crisis that they were seeing because the crisis was escalating and seemed that everyone seemed to know that. Would you subscribe to the view, which I've, I've heard from a number of others, that more or less the nation was not going to ha- find able to find a political solution when the Presbyterians, the Methodists, and the Southern Baptist or the, the Baptists, I should say, had all split 1840s, 50s. That's I just think that's so true. There was a wonderful book written about this, uh, "Broken Churches, Broken Nation," years ago by C.C. Gowen. And it's just this is something that they said over and over. I mean, the Methodists split north and south primarily over slavery. Baptists split north and south, primarily over slavery. Presbyterians split. Well, it was more complicated than that, but slavery was involved in it. They they had a sense, these Protestants, that if the churches can't keep things together, if the ministers can't get along over slavery, then what's the nation going to do? What do we expect from politicians? So the writing seemed to be on the wall. Oh, well... They uh, took up arms. I mean, there was no there was no alternative to that, hence the book. Um, Now, New England Puritans they introduced the Jeremiah to Mm -hmm. colonial America. You're right, but you describe Southern preachers as trying to perfect this, perfect it. Tell us a little bit about this genre, the Jeremiah, and when it went out of style. Assuming that you think that it has gone out of style. Yeah, you know, it's uh, there's still people writing about the Jeremiah, and there have been. and, and it's a consistent pattern in American homiletics. Um, and basically what it is, it's it's named, of course, after the prophet Jeremiah. And it's just this, this rhetorical pattern. It says basically that the nation has sinned, the nation is in trouble, or the people have sinned, the people are in trouble. Um, so it's calling people to repentance. Repent of your sins, but with the understanding that if the people do repent, God will forgive them. So it's a sense that it, it's, 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 it is bad news, good news, right? It's saying to the people, you've sinned against God, you're being punished for that. But if you turn to God, God will bless you. So the idea then is still, you may be still God's chosen people. The people may be God's chosen people. It's just God chastises God's chosen people. And looking at the Hebrew scriptures, looking at the Old Testament, seeing examples of that. Yeah. Well, I would say, I mean, did it, did it, 
was there a point at which it, it came to be used less often? Or, I mean, I guess you could probably argue Second Chronicles 7.14 could still be in that genre. If my own people will humbly pray and turn back to me and stop sinning, then I'll hear their prayer from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their country. Would that be in that same genre, or would there be some differences there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's – and I, I think that the Jeremiah still echoes through uh, – through pulpits uh, here and there. Uh, I think it was much more prominent in the 19th century, for sure, uh, through the 17th century, through the 19th century. Frederick Douglass, for instance, uh, was uh, yeah. a, an expert. Yeah, He wasn't a preacher, but he, he certainly spoke a lot and spoke uh, prophetically. And he he tended to use that term of the Jeremia, the, the style of the Jeremia. David Blight wrote a great book on Frederick Douglass points that out. Mm-hmm. Great one. You could, I mean, if we want to be real controversial here, then we connect that through to Malcolm X and Jeremiah Wright himself in the namesake here. I mean, it's, it's been an ongoing theme in there. You know, be, the, the nation has been afflicted by God because of its sins. And obviously they're talking about their sins of slavery, segregation, racial subjection, colonialism. We could go on and on with that list. Yeah. And, so, and, and it's a prophetic, it, it's an, in many cases, it's intended to be prophetic, and the Jeremiah cuts in several different directions. I mean, the Southerners, and you mentioned Southerners, and I, I do say this, and other historians have pointed this out. Um, even if the Jeremiah was popularized in New England with the Puritans, yeah. it certainly made its way south. And white Southerners, white Southern evangelicals, used the Jeremiah quite a lot during the Civil War, seeing the, that the white South, the, the, the Southern, the Confederacy was God's new chosen nation from their perspective. And, and then that feeds into the lost cause mentality mm-hmm. later that, uh, of course, it remains prominent throughout American history. So I, I'd love for you to, to talk a little bit more about Frederick Douglass, because I love the way you phrase this. Uh, you summarize him as arguing that the Bible was not the nation's book. It was the nation's judgment. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Frederick Douglass knew the Bible extremely well, yeah. um, as many Americans did at the time. Frederick Douglass was also an international celebrity. He was very well known. He was very popular on the speaking circuit. Uh, he was the most uh, popular African-American speaker in the United States. He was photographed. Um, I've read historians who said he had more photographs taken of him than anyone in mm. the 19th century, including Abraham mm. Lincoln. Um, yeah. He was a firm believer in photography. His biblical knowledge came through his speeches. So he was consistently using Scripture, uh, using Scripture, and, and using Scripture to, to bring about change, uh, trying to convince people that the Bible was an abolitionist force, whereas he knew quite well that the Bible had been a slaveholding force in the hands of many people. So he was trying to counteract that, uh, not from the pulpit, of course, because he wasn't a minister, but from uh, the speaker's podium and from from print. So he was very well versed in scripture and, and, and in, and just about all of his major speeches, you hear the Bible, like his, uh, uh, his speech and what to the slave is the 4th of July. You get biblical text through that too. So yes, he was, uh, he was very much a Bible, 
believer and a quarter of scripture and user of scripture. Let's go back to those denominational splits and mm-hmm. let's try to work that, project that forward. So, these denominational splits over slavery in the first half of the 19th century, how did they affect attitudes toward the Bible among Americans in the latter half of the century after the war? What was the effect? I think that, and more research needs to be done, I think, on this, but what you start to get with the Civil War is you get pockets of um, places in the United States and denominations that start to start pick up particular approaches to the Bible. One of the most instructive ways to see this is to look at the way the Bible was used in slavery uh, regarding slavery. So with white Southerners, quite often the Bible is quoted literally because the literal argument often seems to be uh, more conducive to slavery, more supportive of slavery. So People can like um, like Richard Furman in South Carolina uh, in the South can say, hey, you know, the Bible talks about slavery in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And yet nowhere does Jesus say slavery is wrong. Nowhere does Paul say slavery is absolutely wrong. So it looks like slavery is a part of the biblical framework. So reading the Bible literally that way they can make that argument. Whereas abolitionists and anti-slavery preachers in the North who can argue that you have to look beyond the letter of the, of the Bible. You have to look at the spirit. Do you believe that Jesus, the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount, would condone the brutality of slavery? Um, as uh, Frederick Douglass once said, if, if, slave, if an institution's inhuman, it can't be divine. Uh, you know, how do you argue that the spirit of Scripture overall really supports slavery. And and then they can put look at uh, uh, Acts, you know, in the Areopagus speech where Paul says, all are of one blood. And so how can you say, how can you allow one, how, do, how would one group of humanity then enslave another? So, but they move beyond those kind of literal uses of scripture. And so that leads a lot of white Southerners more to, uh, to more uh, favor the literalist perspective, it seems like. And I would argue also a spiritualist interpretation yes. of it mm-hmm. in many mm-hmm. ways For sure. as well. Um, now, probably the first time I encountered some of these arguments would be Mark Knowles' book, The Civil War as a Theological mm-hmm. Crisis. And would you dive down a little bit more on how, abol- how some abolitionist views toward biblical authority ultimately affected their reception and their cause? I mean, bottom line, maybe I'm giving away the, the punchline here, but abolitionists were deeply unpopular in mm-hmm. 1860. I think that's, we, we don't really remember that very much. Go ahead. Yeah, I think what we have to do, and I think this is first order business when you deal with the Civil War, is you have to make a distinction between abolitionist and anti-slavery. Yeah. That's very important. Um, mm. Abolitionist and anti-slavery, and uh, Mark Knowles' book, Civil War's Theological Crisis, does a really good job of specifically talking about the biblical case for and against slavery. So, um, right. so abolitionists were oftentimes uh, more, much more radical. Um, and many, like William Lloyd Garrison, who had almost who had pretty much given up on the political process right. in fighting slavery, and and also abolitionists had the reputation of being anti-religion and anti-Bible. 
because William Lloyd Garrison actually made comments saying that the Bible seems to be too too pro-slavery. So, And plus, the way most Americans tend to read the Bible is too literalistically. So he was ready to just kind of move past the Bible um, because the Bible didn't seem to be helping in the anti-slavery cause. Now, word got out about that, and people start to call abolitionists anti-biblical. And many abolitionists were making statements uh, saying, well, the Bible's not, not so helpful. Now, Garrison himself loved the Bible, um, but he also recognized that the Bible was not all true everywhere. He wanted to find places that he thought the Bible was true and other places where it was more dated. And he found the slavery instructions more dated with that. So I do think we have to make that distinction between anti-slavery and abolitionists. And many anti-slavery preachers really were wishing abolitionists would just be quiet because it, <laughs> it was making it harder for them to use the Bible to argue against slavery because mm. abolitionists had such a reputation as being anti-Bible with a lot of a lot of Christians. So same as the political dynamics there, Lincoln would be a good example of somebody who was anti-slavery but not an- abolitionist. Right. Yes. He right. now, of course, a lot of Democrats, a lot of Lincoln's opponents. Right. including Stephen Douglas, tried their best right. to call him a radical abolitionist. And right. many white Southerners, probably most white Southerners, thought he was abolitionist because they weren't making those fine distinctions. But no, he mm-hmm. claimed, you know, I'm, you know I'm, anti- I'm against slavery, but I'm not a radical abolitionist. Right. Now, I'm, I'm a biblical inerrantist, so you have that as the backdrop as I ask this, this question here. Would you be surprised to know that I still get criticized today from some people who claim biblical inerrancy and therefore also argue that everything went wrong with the Civil War when the slavery view was abandoned? Like, literally, that's something that's still argued to me today. Wow. Does that surprise you? It does in a way. It does. Yeah. So, the reason, one of the major reasons I wanted to have you on here and why I've recommended your book and recommended Mark Knowles is that some of these people who have been criticizing my work, especially on racial issues, a lot of people just don't understand this history. But because of your book, because of Noel's book, because of Harry Stout's book on a moral history of the Civil War, you could see all this. So you could, so you can see, okay, so somebody right now is criticizing me because of my views on racial issues. And they're saying, see, it undermines inerrancy. I'm like, wait a minute. How does it undermine inerrancy here? It's actually the exact same lineage. I had one person, uh, one person who's been very active, actually is involved with Sons of Confederate Veterans. Another major best-selling author once told me that he was a neo-Confederate. Now, they don't advertise this publicly, but I mean, that's why I asked you the question, because this is exactly where it came from. There was the idea you can't be anti, you can't be biblical inerrantist and be anti-slavery. And they've come back, you can't, and I, I mean, I teach a class on cultural apologetics, and this is where we work through the hermeneutics of the biblical arguments about slavery for that reason. But, I mean, did that, did that, um, did it fall out of fashion for a time? Or I'm just trying to figure out how historically did that develop? Or did that just get so embedded in the lost cause that really there never was as much change as some people want to, might imagine? Help me as a historian understand where that's coming from. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that a lot of anti-slavery preachers in the North were what we would consider to be very conservative in their views of the Bible. I mean, uh, it wasn't just the abolitionists who were 
looking askance at parts of Scripture who were anti-slavery. I mean, you had a good number of evangelical preachers in the North who were anti-slavery. So it, so I don't think it breaks down all that neatly. I think people were recognizing things like, well, um, what does slavery? What does the term slavery mean for Paul? Right. What does it mean right. in that situation? You know, is it? Are we talking about a one-to-one correspondence between the institution of slavery at that time and the institution of slavery as it was in the 19th century? I mean, even somebody like Furman, who was trying to argue for slavery, um, was saying, you know, there's just a lot going on with the system of slavery in the Confederacy that the Bible would, that Paul would not tolerate. So, you know, there was a lot of room for, for biblical interpretation there without just saying that, well, the Bible, if you don't accept slavery, you can't accept, you can't accept the Bible. Well, and part of the argument is not just the history before the civil war, it's the history after the civil war. And the argument extends that see all those northern denominations that were anti-slavery all became liberal. They all dropped their theological views. The southern churches that had been pro-slavery, they all, through the lost cause and extended through, they wouldn't use the phrase the lost cause, but they would say they remained conservative. And see, this is why. And so they'll say, see, this is why when you change your views on racial issues or when we speak out on that, you lose the Bible. Again, I, I guess I've been a little bit surprised by that, but more equipped um, to to handle it thanks to some of your work. Now, uh, this is there's so many insightful uh, aspects here and disturbing aspects in this work. Um, how did Confederates manage to turn Exodus from a story about liberation from slavery into a celebration of slavery? That was you remarkable. know it, it, this it, this is really amazing. I mean, part of the struggle that I had in writing this book is. There were some there were some sermons that just didn't pass the laugh test for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there were some sermons that just I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And I really <laughs> wondered, does this minister know that he's just completely enlisting scripture for his own agenda, and he's not really thinking it through the revelation that could be going on here? So, and when you get when you get uh, Confederate favoring ministers saying things like, well, the, the, the Egyptians, the Pharaoh is Abraham Lincoln. And we're, we're like the children of Israel (laughs) fleeing from the slavery of the union. But you remember, I mean, a lot of this was going on in the revolutionary period too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Methodist ministers uh, like John Wesley used to point out like other Brits did at the time, the British did at the time saying, you know, these, these patriots are, are talking about they're fleeing the slavery of the British Empire and King George the Third, and they're actually holding literally yeah. know, supporting slavery. Mm. So using slavery, Egypt, the Egypt story, Exodus as a metaphor, and and trying to downplay its abolitionist appeal is something that's happened a good bit in American history. And so you get to you do see that there, you do see that mm. with the Confederates who take that turn on the Exodus story. Well, there's the advantage of having traced these similar arguments chronologically through time, as you could go back and see their their genesis back then. I hadn't even thought about that before. Now, let's go back to the famous biblical story of Achan um, and how that story, explain how that story came to be used by both sides to justify their views. Yeah, I mean, it's it it's just one of those stories where, you know, the accursed thing, right? Uh, you're talking about that. And um, 
and you know what is this really about? Um, is this about uh, stealing? Is it about uh, doing something forbidden, or is it about slavery? So you know it can you know from this from one point of view it can be uh, the cursing thing is slavery, and the other point of view, you know, well, yeah. there's no slavery in this story. It, it's just an example of how even a narrative that doesn't specifically talk about slavery can be turned to a conversation about slavery uh, in the hermeneutical atmosphere that was going on at the time. So um, you get various biblical stories that can be, well, anything dealing with some kind of property could be turned to talk about slave property and slavery. So yeah, Mm -hmm. it's just one of those cases in which biblical verses can get turned one side up one side and down the other. Yeah. One of the things that I've, kind of concluded recently is that it's not so much usually the divide between people who don't believe the Bible at all or people who do. It's more or less people who accept some parts of the Bible and reject other parts of the Bible. And and just just simply a good example of how biblical stories can be called, well, this is the literalist interpretation. You're thinking, but that's actually a complete abuse of the actual intent of the passage. So anyway, um I just you're I I love history because it gives me this context. Now, one thing that stood out to me, and and I was glad that you jumped into this because it's a major part of the Lost Cause mythology, but how did religiosity hold both armies together in the terrible year of 1864? So you'll see a lot of people who celebrate the Confederacy still today talk about these tremendous revivals during that time, but it is... The carnage of 1864, which I find to be vastly overlooked by people who study, I mean, just people who are interested in the Civil War, because you just don't have the same kind of dramatic battles as some other times, but just nonstop horrific carnage. Right, right. With Grant and Lee. So what was the role that religion played during that time? Well, you know, I read a lot of funeral sermons during Mm. that time. Mm. Uh, I, I read a lot of a lot of newspapers during that time and look for Bible verses there. And I can tell you that the theme of martyrdom Mm. um, that comes out of scripture, I mean, if we see it everywhere in the Bible, right? I mean, you you have to, you just have to look at the crucifixion to see how Jesus is, is is depicted in terms of martyrdom. The book of revelation talks about martyrdom. Um, That theme of martyrdom comes out over and over again. The, the idea that, that there's value to the suffering, and also that there's meaning in the violence. So mm-hmm. attaching redemptive meaning to the bloodshed in Bushnell, or Bushnell probably does this more vividly than anyone does in, after the war is over. And, but he does it during, during the war, too. He's making these same kinds of statements that this, this, this bloodshed is making the nation sacred, mm-hmm. that it's providing a sacredness. Uh, God's ordaining, baptizing by blood, the nation. And this term of baptism by blood is used consistently that there's such meaning here uh, because these sacrifices cannot be in vain. And the Bible reinforces that for a lot of people, that um, there's no redemption without shedding of blood, right? So um, I see that over and over, uh, that, that, of course, the Bible values sacrifice, Willingness to die, lay down your life for your friends. To, exactly, willingness to lay down your life for your friends. I mean, there's no greater love, right? Uh, willingness to kill, 
which, uh, you know, Drew Gilpin Faust and others talk about the really hard courage of the Civil War was to try to convince these Christian soldiers, many of them young. It's not as hard to get them to lay down their lives. It's yeah. hard to get them to kill and and to say and to, and to show them how the Bible and God say it's OK, that it's even demanded to kill. That's the harder courage, Orestes Brownson said and Drew Gilpin Faust talks about. So um, both these agendas going on and others agendas trying to make sense of the violence, there's so many ways in which the Bible is able to be to be slid into these and be, to be placed into these positions to provide comfort, to provide agendas, to provide motivation uh, for people on various sides of this war. Oh, an event... And this this war killed killed men at three times the rate in the South as in the North. One of five men of military in the age in the South died. It's it's bound to change a region um, to mark a region. How did the Bible come to be seen in light of this apocalypse for the South, and then ultimately used to explain it? I have a feeling that you've already begun to answer that question a little bit in your last answer. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's that it's that sense of the meaning of our death, um, the meaning of our life, given the fact that the life did not end as they thought it would. Um, the war did not end as the Confederates thought it would. So what is the meaning of that? Um, and that the Bible get gets grafted into this. And, and again, it gets turned into kind of a Confederate Jeremiad by a lot of white Southerners saying, well, God's punishing us and God does punish those that God loves. And God in scripture used alien forces like Babylonians and you know, Persians and all to, to both punish and deliver God's people. So that kind of mentality uh, found in Scripture, that kind of interpretation feeds into the lost cause, uh, what's called a lost cause civil religion by Charles Reagan mm-hmm. Wilson and others. Right. Now, did, did Southern ministers or, or other leaders who had been invoking Scriptures all along for their cause ever acknowledge that they got it wrong or misled the people into disaster learn their lessons? Did you find any evidence of this? I'm sure there is. I can't think of any offhand where anyone just None. totally did it about face. Can't um, think of any. Yeah, I can't. I really can't. Now, I can think of some who said, we sinned, we were, we deserved it, we were too prideful. Uh, uh, Stephen Elliott is a really interesting uh, Anglican minister of the South who, who said, uh, basically, when Sherman was marching uh, to the sea, that uh, we will be punished, we will lose. Uh, finally got the point, we will lose, but it's because it's a way to eventually win, and it had concocted this way. So so basically mm-hmm. it was a way, even when we're losing, uh, God's still on our side, we're still in the right. So not a sense in which don't get a lot of, you know, we were totally wrong about slavery, we were totally wrong about this, and we need to, and and that's why, and and we need to, to totally reform our way of thinking about race. Didn't get that. But certainly they were saying we've been, we, we lost because we sinned. And that's typical Jeremy. Right. So the control is still, so it's not blaming God. Not blaming God. No. Right. So it's still, so that's how you continue to trust God. Well, it's not his fault. We, he gave us the freedom. We sinned, we forsaked our God and each other. 
through yeah. that. a lot of Job, pointing to a lot of Job and, and, okay. uh, and some apocalyptic stuff too. Hmm. Well, one of the one of the reasons I asked that is because as a as a northerner who li- who lives in the South and loves the South, um, I think if I had one thing to say, and I'm interested to know your feedback on this, would be if I had one thing to say to the North for people to understand about the South that I don't think they get, it's that there was never a collective Southern acceptance of responsibility or apology for either slavery in the Civil War or civil rights and segregation. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's would that's fair or accurate? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's fair. I think it's. Uh, I think we really have to come to terms with the critical uh, place of of this white supremacist assumption and and this su- assumption that uh, that the the nation was on the white basis, as I think you know, as several people put it. Um, so this concept of white supremacy was just in many, it was just really assumed by a lot of whites, um, yeah. not just in the South, but in the North as well. But in the South, uh, when it, around the issue of slavery, they weren't, they really weren't hiding it. I mean, it was pre, it was out in the open and tied to the Bible as well. And this is where Martin Knowles is very helpful in some of his research, because he's talking about how, how thin those biblical arguments were, I mean, when it comes around, when talking about race in the 19th century and how they, uh, there was the, there were these consistent attempts by some whites to make the Bible into a white supremacist document. And hmm. it was difficult to do. I mean, you know, you have Furman, James Furman says the, um, you know, basically that there's no equality among races or the Bible is not true and hmm. attacking the declaration of independence that happened a good right. bit. Um, because of its proclamation of equality there, uh, and saying the Bible is the Bible doesn't do that. Did they blame somebody else then, other than Jefferson, for drafting that, or he was writing a consensus, or did they turn on Jefferson? I don't, I don't recall that. Well, history. what I remember here seeing in several cases where the Declaration of Independence, especially around the, the secession in, in eighteen sixty one, you know, coming around eighteen sixty to eighteen sixty one after the election of Lincoln, caused that. The the arguments that I start to see um, Mm. are and you, of course, these are not particularly new, but that the founders were just wrong. Uh, Many Confederates were saying this founders were just wrong about the Declaration of Independence Mm. Uh, and this because the founders believed that slavery was going to go away. They didn't Mm. want to deal with it. They believed it was Mm. going to die out. So they just kind of left it to future generations to deal with, hoping that basically they saw slavery as a necessary evil at the time. And mm. you get Southerners start you know, say this before, well before the war, Southern uh, slaveholders start to say they were just wrong about that, yeah. that um, slavery was a positive good. And the cornerstone of our civilization. It. Yes, yes. So, right. you know, you start you start to get that with you know, Alexander Stevens and, and right. others. So, yeah. Thanks to the thanks to the cotton gin. Right. Funny, the, the ec- changes things. Yeah. Right. It changes the economics of the situation. And so the founders were right in, in terms of what they understood, or at least we think probably they were right, that it was going to die out because economically tobacco was not viable. Um, but everything changed with the cotton gin there. Well, the reason what I what I thought was so helpful about what you said about white supremacy is that I think it's been recast by many Americans as being associated with the Ku Klux Klan and the specific violence perpetuated all the way from the end of the Civil War all the way through civil rights. 
But I think this is why so many people did not like Harper Lee's To Kill a Watchman, and are and because that is a more accurate description of the kind of white supremacy as expressed by Atticus Finch in that book that is far more normative throughout the South, and in fact, so normative to have been taken for granted almost entirely. It was not always with the violent face. It was simply assumed to be part of the order of things that good people were called to uphold. At least that's how I explain that book and why I like that book. Yeah, it's not hard to find evidence for this. I mean, you know, just let's look at the Lincoln-Douglas debates. I mean, you're talking before the Civil War here. And um, Stephen Douglas makes it a point to try to call, to try to accuse Lincoln of equality between the races. Uh, To try to to accuse Lincoln of of believing that in racial equality. And he tries to tie Lincoln to Frederick Douglass. He said, you know, right. Lincoln's buddy's Frederick Douglass, you know, so Lincoln believes in racial equality. And and Lincoln goes out of his way to deny that. Right, um, exactly. Lincoln goes it. out of the way to, to deny that. No, he's like, I don't believe in racial equality. So Lincoln, who's very clearly anti-slavery, denies that he right. believes in racial equality because he knows, well, you know, he probably, doesn't, probably didn't believe in racial equality, but it, but even so, he, he knew that that was political suicide in the North, even not just the South. Right. So this assumption of white supremacy uh, was for white superiority was fairly, it's fairly easy to see in the, in the documents. And that's why it's, um, that's why the, the North South boundaries are often so confusing to us even today, because so much of, you know, Lincoln having come from Kentucky, a slaveholding state that did not fight with the South, then does, you know, then works in Illinois and then goes up against, of course, another Illinois politician. But there are all these arguments that are white supremacist there. Actually, I thought this was one reason why the Lincoln movie was actually helpful in how it depicted these arguments about slavery. It showed the nature of the Democratic Party of being deeply racist um even as even as uh, you know a, a decent measure of it in the north was unionist at the same time um last last question about about lincoln or last question here overall um now one of the things harry stout argues is that lincoln if i remember him correctly he would argue that more or less lincoln was the only person to transcend the sort of moral descent um i, I mean i think you could clearly point out frederick douglas as another though douglas's douglas was a little bit more eager in terms of the violence i would say than you know lincoln was the one commanding it so he's the one responsible for it but douglas was like a little bit more eager in that he would also argue that charles hodge had a change of opinion at some course that allowed him to see differently but how do you assess what was Lincoln as he evolved in this process? I mean, with a, with an almost unparalleled, at least recall of scripture. Um, how, how do you assess his place in this? Is he able to rise above or is he just sort of caught in this maelstrom that he of course was, was directing in so many ways? Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the sectional division, I mean, Mark Knoll's um, America's God book, yeah. uh, Mark Knoll, you know, the, the subtitle of that book's interesting from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln. Mm. And he talks about Lincoln's theological approach in the second inaugural address and other places where Lincoln refuses to see things in terms of the sectional divisions that Lincoln right. is able to see, you know, both sides were were wrong. Both sides are are being judged in this war, and um, that 
and Noel gives Lincoln credit for his ability to see beyond the sectional divisions. Um, it's interesting after the second inaugural Lincoln, you know, second inaugural dress was not, it did not receive rave reviews. No. Uh, it was <laughs> no, not your no. typical, um, I mean, it has since, of course, right. it's one of the most famous right. speeches in American. I, I think historian Jill Lepore says that when presidents are planning their yeah. uh, inaugural dresses, they could read all the other ones or they could just skip the rest and just <laughs> read Lincoln's. It's um, true. So, uh, his second inaugural dress was very much appreciated, of course, since then. It was, but at the time, it wasn't a rah-rah patriotic speech. Right. We were all right. The war's war ending, and things are great for us in the North. Uh, it was much more of a sober, sober analysis. And after he was responding to a letter, someone wrote a letter saying to Lincoln, well, thank, I appreciated your speech. And he said something like, well, something <laughs> like, people aren't used to hearing that God's purpose is not their purpose or that yeah. their purpose is not, not some other than God's, right. but it was a truth that I thought needed to be told. So there, you know, there is that, um, he did have an acute knowledge of scripture and did have a sense of, of providence. He talked about providence a lot. Right. Right. Uh, and he seemed to dwell on providence and exactly what is going on in the war, what is God doing in the war, were questions that were pressing for him, even though he wasn't a church member. It wasn't, right. and and it, after his assassination, there was all this argument of, was Lincoln a Christian? Well, that was right. a tough question to answer, and I'm not going to answer it either. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't even going to ask it. <laughs> wasn't even going to ask yeah, it. But that's, yeah. but I, that's why I thought Stout's framing was insightful, because of just describing how— uh, of, his his critique of the pulpits is that the pulpits more or less ceased in the main, almost ceased as a whole, to be transcendent spiritual pulpits, to be being purely partisan for their sides. Um, and so that's why Lincoln stands out in exactly that way. Well, I'm grateful for the time you've given here, guys. Check out check out uh, James P. Byrd's new book, A Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood, The Bible and the American Civil War. Um, I say as somebody who, who reads about everything I can on the Civil War, this has made a significant contribution, especially to me. Who I, I'm always trying to figure out the ongoing implications, but also the interplay between theology and culture and history. And your book has been a great contribution to that field. Thank you, Dr. Byrd. Thanks so much. Uh, it was great to be here. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gospel Bound. For more information, including past episodes, transcripts, and to sign up for my newsletter, go to tgc.org slash gospelbound. If you like what you've heard, you may also like my new book written with Sarah Zalstra called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. You can find it wherever books are sold. Thank you.